following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Would you please open your Bibles? If you brought them, and I hope you did, open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 12. If you didn't bring one, you can use one of ours. There are hardback black Bibles under every single chair. 1 Samuel chapter 12, in those books, in those Bibles, is on page 233. 1 Samuel 12 is where we're going to spend our time. If you're online with us, we love you. We're glad you're with us. Click that Bible tab. 1 Samuel is on there. Uh, 1 Samuel 12, phone, tablet, whatever it is. Uh, We don't put verses on screens here at Fathom Church. So I really do. I want you to open them up. I want you to see the words that we're talking about. And we've got a lot of work to do because we're going to cover this whole chapter. It's 25 verses. That's why I say the gloves are off. It's time for second service to commence. Uh, so, So we've got a lot of work. 1 Samuel chapter 12, got a lot of work. Uh, question real quick, have y'all enjoyed this, this 1 Samuel series the last few weeks? We've been in this for five weeks. Uh, I think it's been pretty cool. Um, uh, and and here's, here's the truth. This stuff almost never gets preached on. I mean, the middle section of 1 Samuel is stuff that almost never gets preached on. I have looked at many, many church websites and 1 Samuel sermon series, and here's what I tend to find in 1 Samuel sermon series. The first thing I I, I seem to find in 1 Samuel series is they love to talk about the birth of Samuel, like the miracle of Hannah's birth of Samuel. They like to talk about the calling of Samuel to become a prophet, like speak, Lord, for your servant hears. That story gets a lot of play and airtime. And then they love to skip over the middle section of the book and hit the ground running with King David. That's, I mean, really, they skip, it's like almost everybody skips over Saul because Saul's complicated. Saul is interesting. Saul is, 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 in, I mean, he's just kind of a strange guy, all right? He's a complicated character, uh, and so they skip over that. And you know, listen, I'm pumped for, for King David. I'm, I am excited for us to get to David, okay? We'll get there, I promise, but just not yet. Because this stuff with Saul is so important to Israel's history, and as we're finding, it's unbelievably applicable to us, this stuff in the middle of this book. So we're going to keep going. We're halfway through the Saul section here. We've done, uh, today's week six. We've got five more weeks after this for Saul. And then guess what? We're not going to get to David because we're going to go to the New Testament. We'll get to David another time. I promise though. I promise we'll get there. Let me give you a quick recap, okay? Because you need to know where we're at in the story to know what's happening in 1 Samuel 12. Here's what happened. At the beginning of the book, Samuel was born. This, this, this guy named Samuel, the namesake of this book, he is Israel's greatest prophet, okay? He is also the last judge of Israel. And, and when I say judge, don't think judge like a robe and a gavel kind of judge like we've got in our American law system, okay? Uh, God had been leading his people, the Israelites, by the hand of men and women called judges. Uh, and you could read about them in the book of... Judges, good job, proud of you, okay? Um, well, well, Samuel, who you can read about in the book of Samuel, good job, okay? Uh, he is Israel's last judge. He's Israel's last judge because in 1 Samuel chapter eight, which we preached on, Israel demands God give them a king. They said, we don't want, we don't want no more judges. Give us a king, why? So that we can be like everybody else. That's what they say. Give us a king so we can be like all the other nations. But in doing this, they are in fact rejecting God's rule over them. 
They are rejecting God because God was supposed to be their king. God was supposed to be their primary leader. He had given them judges to help them out, but God was supposed to be the top dog in Israel. And so in doing this, they are in rebellion against God. In demanding a king, they're in rebellion against God. And even though Samuel warns them repeatedly, feels like every week Samuel has been warning them they're obstinate. They, are, they want a king. Give us a king so that we can be like everyone else. So God gives them a king. Enter Saul. Saul, son of Kish, all right? Now, Saul, from the outside, looks the part. Tall, handsome, like he's perfect king material. All the tabloids going crazy over Brother Saul, right? They love that stuff. You're in the grocery line, Saul, 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 all along there. You know what I'm talking about? People, weekly, U.S., these things, I don't know what they are, okay? That's Saul, He looks very impressive from the outside. But as we've already seen, there's some red flags. There's some red flags, right? Like to whether or not he has the character necessary to be king over God's people. And believe it or not, character is a very important trait to your leaders. I mean, I know we live in America today and so we don't really believe that. That's a political joke. Take it either side you want, okay? I'll stand on both sides and say the same thing. Character is really important in your leaders. So you've heard the phrase, be careful what you wish for, because you might just get it. Well, God is giving God's people what they asked for. Okay, Saul is now the king. He was privately anointed by Samuel. Then he was publicly chosen as the king. And then last week we saw after he is filled with the Holy Spirit, with God's spirit, he delivers the people from Nahash, the Ammonite, an an enemy of God's people. Uh, The people renew the kingdom and essentially inaugurate Saul. He is now King Saul. And today in chapter 12, if you look at your text in the ESV specifically, the little header for chapter 12 says Samuel's farewell address. So we find essentially Samuel's retirement speech here. Samuel is stepping down because Saul is king. Now that Saul has been inaugurated as king, Israel doesn't need a judge anymore. And so Samuel is stepping down from being Israel's judge. Now he will still function as Israel's prophet and priest at times, but he will no longer wear the judge hat and lead Israel. It's now Saul's Job. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this text. And just like always, okay, it's going to feel boring at times because this is a lot of text. But just like always, there's deep meaning and meat on the bone for us if we're willing to wade into these deep waters together. So here we go. First Samuel chapter 12. Follow along in your text. We're going to read verses one through five. And Samuel said to all of Israel, here's his speech. Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you and I am old and gray and behold, my sons are with you. And I've walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. Verse four, they said, you have not defrauded or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And so Samuel said to them, 
The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they all said, he is witness. Okay, verses one through five is the, the beginning of Samuel's speech, and he's setting this up, kind of making a case that he has led God's people with integrity. That's what he's just said in those five verses. He, his point is that he's led faithfully, and the people all affirm it. He's like, I haven't stolen your donkeys, which would have been a shady move, right? He's like, I haven't stolen your ox. I haven't stolen your donkeys. I've not, bri- I've not bribed anybody. I've been, I've been a faithful leader. And everybody's like, we witnessed this. We agree with you. You have been a great leader. And that's important because it sets now Samuel up to speak one last time the really hard things from God to God's people. So I'm gonna break his message into two sections, okay? Two main sections. And the first section is where Samuel brings God's case against his people. That's what he's gonna do in the the coming verses. He's gonna make a case, God's case, against the Israelites. And it's gonna feel like a, a punch to the gut. And he sets this up by saying, hey, I've not led you astray. I've been faithful. Now hear me one last Time. So here we go. God's case against his people, starting in verse six. So Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. So, so, so he starts by saying, I'm gonna, let me, I'm, I just want to plead with you. I'm going to plead with you one last time. I, let me plead with, I'm going to plead with you. Repent. He's going to plead with them to repent. He's going to plead with them to obey God's commands. He's going to plead with them to turn away from this rebellion that they've been living in and sitting in as they've demanded a king. He's gonna plead with them one more time. And the way he's gonna do this is he's gonna start by showing them the the historical downward spiral that they've been in that got them to this place where they demanded a king. So he's gonna show us three like images from Israel's history that are gonna set up the mess that they're in today. We'll see this in the text. Look at verse eight. When Jacob went into Egypt, so this is movement one, when Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. So this is the first image, okay? The first historical moment and he brings up the Exodus, right? When, when God saved his people from slavery in Egypt. You've seen those movies? Right, you know what I'm talking about? Moses, let my people go, staff, snake, plagues, all that stuff. Yes, okay, you're aware of this. God saved his people, but I want you to note this, that in their distress, and the text says this, they cried out to the Lord and God rescued them. That's gonna be important. They cried out to the Lord. That's, that's movement one, that's image one, the Exodus, 400 years before he's speaking to them. Now, on to number two, verse nine but they forgot the Lord, their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord, there it is again, and said, we have sinned 
because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. Verse 11, and the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. The first image was of the Exodus 400 years prior. The second image is the the season of the judges, the period of the judges that we just talked about that that bridges the gap from the the people entering the promised land until this very moment. And so he brings up the fact that God's people, again, forsook God. They started worshiping idols. They started worshiping the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And so he says, "I, I, I handed them over to their enemies. But when they cried out to me, I sent judges. And he lists four of the judges. There are more judges, uh, obviously, but I just, I want to point out that in their, their, their crying out to God, they respond, God responds to his people by showing them mercy and delivering them again. That, so that's the second one, the, the Exodus, the judges, and now he's going to move right into the modern historical context for these people. And we'll see this in verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, so that's who we talked about last week. When Nahash, the king of the Ammonites came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. So this is the third moment, okay? In their current context, apparently, Nahash the Ammonite had been the scourge of Israel more than just what we saw last week and and thus was the impetus for God's people to demand a king. We've read about this, okay? Uh, And and so did you you notice what's different about that third movement than the first two? You know what's missing in that third movement? Did you see this? The people don't cry out to God. The people in Egypt cried out to God and God delivered them. The people have disobeyed God in the period of the judges and they cry out to God and he sends judges to deliver them. But now Nahash the Ammonite is showing up and he's fighting against and he's standing against God's people. And what do they do? There's no cry for help to the Lord. Instead, they go to Samuel. Listen, they already know what they want. They already have a plan of action. And so they said, they don't cry out to the Lord. They say, we want a king. Give us a king so we can be like everyone else. And now here's where this is our first point of application for us. This is where this is applicable to us. You see, we all have nahashes in our lives. Many of us, listen, many, if you are a Christian, many of us cry out to God for help in many areas in our lives. We're not completely faithless. We cry out to God for many things, but there can still be these Nahash things where you just don't trust him. And instead, you try to take matters into your own hands. Okay, we think we know best how to handle Nahash. Give me a king. I've got a plan. I've got this. But hear me, that's rebellion against God. And, and listen, rebellion against God always feels right to start. It's going to feel right 
Okay, it's going to seem like the logical, coherent next step to handle your problem. You, you say, I've got this. I've got, I just need a king. Listen, we love God as king, but all these judges, they're not helping us out. We, must, we need a king with a real sword. We need a physical king who can actually protect us from Nahash the Ammonite. And so this makes sense to these people. It's not that they're doing something crazy that makes no sense. They're not dummies. Nahash presents a real threat and they need a real king and God's just not gonna cut mustard anymore. I've got this. And, but this is how it always works. You always say, I've got this until you realize you don't got this, right? I've got this. But whatever it is you put in place to take care of that Nahash thing, it falls short. So this is how it works with a Nahash thing. We make promises. We make promises. I, I'm never going to look at that stuff again. I promise I'm never going to look at that stuff again. I'm never going to drink that stuff again. I know where it leads me. I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to talk that way again. I'm never going to treat her or him like that again. I'm never going to lose my temper like that again. I never. I mean, we do this every single January 1st, right? We make our resolutions. We make our, I'm never going to do that again sort of promises. But then, but then there's a huge difference between saying, I've got this. Give us a king. And acknowledging that I don't got this and crying out to the Lord for help. So this is what's happening here. One last time, Samuel is saying to the Israelites, you're in rebellion. You're rebelling against God. You're choosing the king over God. You're trusting in yourself. You're saying, in essence, I've got this. And so here's where he begins to plead with them. He's gonna plead with them. Look at verse 13. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Now, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord, your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So here's where Samuel explains it all once again. He's pleading with them. He's explaining it once, once again. And here's what he says. If you obey, it's gonna go well. But if you disobey, then the hand of the Lord will be against you. So this is Samuel's last word, his retiring word, his final word, his mic drop moment, okay, in his farewell address. And he says one thing, obey. Obey God. His plead to the people is just, just obey him. Obey his commandments. But then he does one more thing. And this is a little interesting thing that shows up in the text, but let me read it and then we'll explain it. Verses 16 to 18. He says, now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great. 
which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. So he's making this case. He's, he's making this case. He's saying, you, you're, you're, you're in rebellion. You need to obey. He even pulls the king into it. He's like, you got a king now, but, but, but start obeying. If you obey and your king obeys, it's going to go well. But if you don't, it's not going to go well. And, and then he's like, just in case people weren't listening or they had like tuned him out or they're like, oh gosh, it's Samuel. He's senile. He's old. He's already told us he's old and gray. So that's just how it is. And he's just going on one of his prophetic rants again. And they've kind of tuned out just in case that's happened because they've not listened to him at any point in the past. So just in case that happens, Samuel is going to give them a sign of God's case against them. He's not just going to say it with his lips. He's going to prove it with a sign. And so he mentions the wheat harvest, that it is now the time of the wheat harvest. That's the time of year in this part of the, of the world, in this region of the country, where it would never rain during the harvest time. This is not the rainy season. This is the harvesting season. You planted during the rains and then you reaped after the rains had ceased. Actually, it would really damage and destroy your crops if it rained heavily during the harvesting season. So you don't even know what just blew up when all that rain from the Lord came, okay? So Samuel essentially says, it's gonna rain. It's not supposed to rain, but it's gonna rain. And this is a sign of your wickedness. This is how you know that you've been disobedient and that you are wicked before God. It'd be, like a, it'd be like literally a forecaster saying, hey, 4th of July, Miami Beach, wear a parka because a blizzard's coming. That's, that's, that's how crazy this sign would have been. So he makes his case against God. Uh, God makes his case against his people, seals it with this sign. And listen, it feels in my mind like this is a bit heavy. Like Samuel, ease up, man. I thought this was retirement party. I thought we were going to eat some cake after this. But I want to apply it to us because God's case is actually meant to bring conviction to his people. He's laying this this heavy burden. You're wicked. You're rebelling. You're in sin. He's levying these hard accusations against God's people, but it's not meant to crush them. It's meant to convict them. It's meant to convict them. And conviction, listen, conviction from God is a gift. When you and I are convicted of our sins, that is a kind gift from the Lord. Romans 2 says that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It's the kindness of God when he convicts you of something that leads you to actually want to change and turn from that mess. So, My story is this, before I got saved, I can remember hearing preachers talk about sin and rebellion and it would, would, like a sermon like this, it would rub me the wrong way. I remember being in high school thinking, like I'd get offended, don't judge me, I'm wicked. Who are you to tell me that? Don't tell me what's right and wrong. You don't even know what's right and wrong. Who are you? Like I can remember feeling offended and even upset at times when hearing the message of God's judgment over sin. But then a crazy thing happened. I got saved. And, and, and after God saved me, I would go and I'd hear preachers tell me that I'm a sinner. Tell me that, that in my sinful state, I am an enemy of God. And that if I didn't repent of those sins, 
things wouldn't go well with me. And it was the same message that I had heard in the past. But instead of taking offense in that moment, it's like I, it's like I needed to lean into it. It's like I wanted to hear it all the more. It wasn't as offensive at that point because I recognized that I was indeed sinning and I was no longer offended by that, but rather I started feeling hungry for conviction. It's like I've told you guys before, like I love, one of the things I love about Fathom is that you almost lean into a gospel beat down. Like I preach the gospel, you're like, come on, give us more, punch us harder. I love that. I love that about this church because conviction is a gift. You know why it's a gift? Because before I was saved, I never felt conviction. I might feel a little bit of remorse or a little bit sad or sorrowful, but I never felt conviction that actually led me to repentance. Conviction is a gift because it's evidence that God's got you, that God's after you, that God is pursuing you. And when I started to feel that conviction in my life, I was assured that Jesus was actually in my life. So this conviction, it's meant to be a gift. That's the first part of his, I think, harsh farewell address. Now let's look at the second part because he doesn't end with all this doom and gloom, all right? We've seen God's case against his people. Now let's look on verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. So this is a new result, right? Samuel has consistently on repeat over the last four or five chapters said you're in rebellion. You're in rebellion by asking for this king. You're in sin. And it would seem that God's people didn't care until now. The people seem to have heard what Samuel warns, or at least they are uh, believed because of the sign of that rainstorm or whatever, but they feel the conviction therein. And so they say with their mouths, we have sinned. They say, pray for us. Don't leave us, Samuel, pray for us. We're in the wrong here, help us out. At least verbally, they are professing repentance. Now, we'll see if they demonstrate repentance, but they are at least verbally repentant in this moment. And again, this is how you know that the conviction of God has actually fallen on you and landed on you. It will lead you to repentance. It will lead you to wanting to turn away from the thing that you were rebelling in. But conviction always stings a little bit. I mean, you can hear it in their voices. Help us. We've added to our sin. What do we do? Help us. See, conviction always stings. It's like when I was a kid um, and I'd get hurt. So, you know, we'd ride bikes or, or whatever because that's what we did. We rode bikes when we were kids because when, when I was a kid, we played in a little place called Outside. Uh, I don't know if people do that anymore. Like we weren't cooped up playing video games all day because Tetris got boring after like six minutes, right? So we would go outside and we rode bikes in the streets without helmets, God help us, right? And there were no little plastic green guys with sticks and red flags warning people to slow. Like, I don't know how an entire generation survived without helmets and little green men, but uh, that's what we did, right? I don't know how we survived. 
But often when riding my bike as uh, a kid, I would wreck. Just wreck, you know. Uh, my mom would actually, she, if she's watching, mom would actually, she bought me a helmet. She would want me to wear a helmet. I'd ditch that helmet in the bush as soon as I got away from my house, okay? But I would crash and I'd like bust up my knee or, you know, skin my leg or do something uh, and, and it would hurt. Like you get injured, you get hurt. And the worst part about getting hurt was the knowledge that I had to go home and face mama, right? Because first she would chide me for like, where was your helmet? Why weren't you wearing your helmet? And I'd be like, all right, mama's gonna be angry at me, but I'm bleeding out of my leg, mama, help me, right? So the first moment was the knowledge that I had to like tell mama that I dished my helmet in the bush. But then the second thing is that I knew that mama would wanna clean out my wound. And mom cleaned with a little special product called Bactine. I don't know if that still exists. I don't know if Bactine's still a thing. Um, but Bactine is like the Windex of healthcare, okay? It is a catch-all. It does everything, okay? Scrape your knee, spray some Bactine on that thing, okay? Cut your hand, little Bactine. Poison ivy, Bactine. Snake bite, Bactine. Acne, Bactine. Broken leg, Bactine, right? Just hit that thing with Bactine. It's just, it was the one-stop shop for everything medical at my home, and I dreaded it. I dreaded going home to face mom, but I dreaded the Bactine because when she sprayed it on my cuts and my scrapes and my, my, my wounds, it stung like crazy. It was like fire on the wound. It, would, it almost felt like it was more painful than the pain that I was experiencing. I'm just like, leave it bloody, you know? Just, it'll scab up eventually. Just leave the, the pain alone. But mama loved me. And she knew that in doing this and inflicting some pain on top of what I'm already experiencing is the first step and maybe the only step towards healing that wound well. Church, conviction stings when you get hit with it. It feels like fire sometimes. It feels like it's burning. It feels like I'll do anything to avoid it but it stings because it forces you to get honest. It, it stings because it forces you to reckon with all the stuff that you're trying to run and hide from. But I just wanna say, don't despise the conviction of the Lord. It's a gift. It's a gift of God. Conviction, it's, it's that conviction that's the first step towards health. It might sting, it might burn, it might feel like your leg is on fire, but it's the only way to start cleaning out that wound and prevent something worse from taking root. It's conviction that actually leads to change and repentance. So he's bringing it. He's bringing it. Look at, look at verses 20. We'll finish this up, 20 to the end. So Samuel said to the people, this is after they've professed repentance. He said, help us, pray for us, don't leave us. We've sinned. So Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. And those two parts of that sentence shouldn't go together, right? Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Those two shouldn't go together, but they do. Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. The Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. 
and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So what does God do with his people when they have committed spiritual disaster? How does God respond when they have charted their own course in rebellion against him? What what does he say to people when they come to see how ugly their sin and their depravity really is? What's his response? He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. This is the second point. We saw God's case against his people. Now we see God's grace for his people. Yeah, there's a case levied against them and it is dire. But God's grace is proclaimed by God's prophet. Yes, you've done this evil. Yes, you've asked for a king. Yes, you are in rebellion. You've done all these things. But if you repent, you have still not out my grace. See, if God's case against us brought conviction, then God's grace for us shows us that there is no condemnation. And there's a huge difference between conviction and condemnation. This is where I think we get a little bit fumbly in Christian worlds and in understanding the difference between conviction or condemnation. I've been thinking about this a lot this week because it feels like, it feels like one of the themes that we've seen in the last five weeks in 1 Samuel, even today, is the theme of obedience. Like, it's felt pretty heavy. Like, I'm, I feel like every Sunday I'm just like frothing at the mouth yelling at you to obey. I mean, it feels like the last five weeks. Like, there's, there's, there's the clip for Twitter, right? Obey, right? And so I've said things like this. I've said th- things like this in the first few weeks. I said in week one, you will always either obey God's voice or your voice, right? I said in week two, what do you think God, why do you think God would give you a new word when you fail to obey the word he's already given you, right? I said that. I said in week three, if you love Jesus, then you will obey his commandments. And that was actually me just quoting Jesus. And then last week I said, you don't have to keep doing the things that you used to do because you aren't the same person that you used to be. You can actually obey God. Like you don't have to sit in your sin any longer. You're not stuck there. You can actually obey him if you've got the Holy Spirit in you. That's what I've said on repeat. And then today, Samuel, he's just hammering on obedience. It's obedience and obedience. And here's the thing I've been mulling on. I love this message of obedience. I think it's very applicable to us. But what about when you disobey? What about when you do the things you don't want to do? What about when you're not obedient and you know you should be? Because man, there are certain sins for each one of us that just seem impossible to break away from. Like we know that we should and we can't seem to break them. Maybe there are nahashes. I mean, does anybody else just get frustrated with themselves struggling over the same things that they've struggled with for decades, like back in adolescence or something? No? Just me? 
If you want to come up here and take the face mic, you're not struggling with anything you've struggled with for a long time. Let's talk about it. But I'm just saying, like, I find myself frustrated with some of the same junk I've been dealing with since I got saved in high school. Why can't I get this? It's like I keep falling again and again and again. And this is why I think these, po- these chapters in 1 Samuel are so very important for us. How many times has Samuel warned them? How many times has he pleaded with them, stop disobeying God? I mean, how many times has he pointed out their disobedience? And today, on his last day in office, they're like, okay, we'll repent. I'd lose my mind. If I preach here for 30 years and nobody repents until my last Sunday, that's it, I'm done, right? I'm washing my hands of you people, you stiff-necked people, right? That's what I go Old Testament on you. I'm done with you. But that's not how Samuel handles this. When God's people repent, no matter how many times they've fallen, God's faithful to extend grace. There is no condemnation. So, so I don't want you to miss this. We must obey. This is not cheap grace. This is costly grace. This costs Jesus his very life, his very blood. It's not cheap, but it is free and it's abundant and he gives more. We must obey, but when we don't, and we repent, there's more grace for us. This is the good news of the gospel, my friends. I want to point us to a New Testament parallel of this idea, conviction and condemnation, okay? Uh, In Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is wrestling with this very issue, and so I'm going to put some verses up on the screen. Romans 7, this is what Paul says. Apostle Paul says this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You read this verse before? Let me just remind you, this is the Apostle Paul speaking here. This is Paul, okay? Dude wrote most of our New Testament. Okay, this is Paul. We're t- this is to live is Christ, to die is gain, Paul. This is, uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me from prison, Paul. That's who's writing these words. And here Paul is saying this, I know the good I should do. I know that I should obey. I want to obey, but I keep doing the things that I don't want to do. I keep sinning. I keep doing evil. In essence, he's saying, what's wrong with me? Verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He feels the conviction of the Holy Spirit and he wants to be delivered. And so he cries out, who can help me? Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then the very next verse, Romans 8, 1. Everybody loves this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, did you hear the context of that verse? Coming right on the heels of chapter 7, where Paul's like, I keep sinning. I know I should do right, and I can't seem to do it. 
What, who is going to help me with this? And he thanks the Lord for Jesus Christ because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul said. If you're in Christ and today you're hearing whispers, like from this, this is a heavy text. You're evil. You're sinful. You are wicked. This is a hard text. And if you hear these things and all you're hearing are whispers of condemnation instead of words of conviction, then those words are not from God. If you are in Christ, then there is therefore now no condemnation for you. Condemnation comes from the enemy, not from God. Okay, but they can sound very similar. Really, I mean, they can almost be identical. Here, here I'll show it to you. Conviction. Conviction says this. What a wretched man I am. Condemnation says this. What a wretched man you are. See the difference there? One is a confession of need, a crying out, as it were, for God to help. And the other will beat you into the ground. Conviction is God's kindness towards us. Condemnation is the enemy's weapon against us. And this is why many Christians are stuck. Because they don't take conviction, they hear condemnation. Here's the illustration I'll use. Uh, I've told you about uh, President James A. Garfield before, but I'll tell him again because I think it's helpful. Uh, He was our 20th president. He is one of four presidents who was assassinated. Okay, That's, that's a fun fact, James A. Garfield. Um, on July 2nd, 1881, so this is post-Civil War, okay? On July 2nd, 1881, as he was leaving Washington for his summer vacation, uh, President Gar- Garfield was shot twice. He was shot twice, and uh, they, they carried him back to the White House, and the doctors thought that there's no chance this guy is surviving even the night. Uh, but the next morning, his vitals were, were looking good, and so the doctors began to hope for recovery, for President Garfield. Now, uh, history tells us that the doctors managed to keep uh, President Garfield alive for 79 days after being shot. Lincoln lasted like 48 hours. How he got on a penny in the $5 bill, I have no idea, right? Garfield. Uh, If I run for president, it's Garfield on money, okay? That's what I'm saying. Um, 79 days, he's been being kept alive, uh, and most historians and medical experts of today believe that President Garfield probably would have survived his gunshot wounds had he been cared for today, okay? But uh, you see, the method of their day to remove bullets uh, was to insert, the, the physician, the doctor, would insert one's fingers into the wound to probe around and try and pull out the bullet. Maybe you've seen this like I don't know, in some war show where they're like trying to, you know, get a bullet out with a finger or a knuckle or something. That's how they did it. They would try and pull out the wound, uh, pull out the the bullet from the wound. So every day, uh, his doctors would probe for the bullet. Every day, President Garfield, laying there in his bed at the White House, would have a doctor insert a finger into the wound, probe the wound, and try and find the bullet, but they just couldn't get it out. They even brought in Alexander Graham Bell, who was, uh, you know, busy inventing the phone, but he also was busy inventing, he was doing something, but he was busy inventing the x-ray, and they were trying to figure out where this bullet was, and to no avail, okay? Um, And Garfield's autopsy, after those 79 days, discovered that he had pneumonia in both of his lungs, and his body was filled with pus due to uncontrolled infections from probing this wound with uh, less than clean hands. 
listen, uh, most historians say that that because he lasted 79 days, it's very unlikely that that bullet did any sort of damage to any vital organs. And so very likely, if they would have left the wound alone, it would have closed up and he probably could have gone on living with the bullet inside of him. So President Garfield died not from being shot, but from never letting the wound heal. Hear me today on this. Condemnation keeps probing your wounds. Condemnation is a finger that will not allow your wounds to heal. You did that again? You did what again? You slipped up like that again? You should, you should know better by now. How long have you been following Jesus? How could you do that again? God must be sorely disappointed with you. He's certainly not patient enough. He's done with you at this point. You've gone too far. Those are the words of condemnation. Those are probing the wound. But when those words of condemnation came up, Samuel would probably respond with this. Hey, you did that again? Don't be afraid. You slipped up again? Repent, turn from that sin. You fell flat on your face in the thing that you promised you'd never do again, again? You repent and his grace is abundant. You have not gone too far. Follow God, obey God, stop probing the wound. So listen, if you're hearing today the words of condemnation, they are not from God. If you are in Christ and you are hearing words of condemnation and it feels like they're just niddling, that that those are words of condemnation are not from God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you feel the pangs of conviction, oh, accept those as God's gift to you, my friends. Through his spirit to the believer, he is beckoning you. He's pleading with you to repent, to turn, to change the direction of your life. God's case and God's grace. God's case and God's grace. So, do you feel his conviction today? Man, I do. The nahashes in my life, man, I feel that. It's evidence that he loves me. It's evidence that he's working on me. It's evidence that he's not done with me yet. You feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit today. What is it that God's convicting you of? Big things, little things, nahash things, even small things. Does it sting a little bit? Is it burning you up from the inside? It's the first step towards healing. Maybe today this is the first time you've ever felt this. Maybe you're online with us and you've never felt the conviction of your sins until today. And that would mean that God's calling you. He's beckoning you. He's pleading with you to you, to, to give your life to him. To follow him, to become a Christian. If, it, if you're feeling the conviction of the Spirit for the first time today, then you need to be saved today. Maybe you're already a follower of Christ, okay? But the conviction is, is of something that you've just been disobedient in. Big things, small things, like maybe it's a Nahash thing. But the thing is, you keep saying, I've got this. 
when it's clear that you don't got this. Doing the same thing over and over again with the same result and expecting a different result is the definition of insanity, right? And confessing that you don't got this is the first step towards healing. So to those things, whatever those things are for you, God is saying this, don't be afraid. There's grace for you. Are you in Christ? Then there's, there's no condemnation for you. You're free. You're free to follow the Lord. You are free to fight those temptations. You are free to surrender those struggles, to obey him. So church, don't despise this conviction. But please don't buy the lie of condemnation. You have not outsinned the grace available to you. But you have to surrender. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, what a, what a passage for this morning. What a passage that we could have easily flipped over. What a passage that we easily could have said was irrelevant. But what a passage that reveals the gospel once again to us. The case and the grace, the case against us is strong, Father. We, we admit that. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. We are wicked. But the grace that you offer to those who believe is greater. It's greater than the case against us. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Greater are those convicting messages than the condemnations from our enemy. Oh, if we would only believe it. Oh, if we would only live into who we are now. So Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit today, lay heavy on us. Hunt us down, weigh us down until, until we're ready to, to say, I don't got this. Holy Spirit, I pray you're doing this even right now in the lives and the hearts of men and women here. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you that it cost. Help us to live in accordance with your ways. And so we trust you with this. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit.